in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so it was that God began speaking the words that, that sent forth the Spirit of God that created order in the universe. It, it divided light from dark, created the, the waters from the land. It, it, it set the stars and the planets in their place. And the structure of the universe was formed by the word of God. And God kept speaking. And he, and he continued to speak into his creation. And as he was speaking, it was bringing forth the plants, the animals, fish, birds, all the different parts of creation. And God spoke for the first five days. But on the sixth day, God changed the order of creation. He stopped speaking into the creation and he came down in his own person to the ground. With his own hands, he reached down and he began forming the dust together. He pulls it together to the shape of a man. Then he bends over and he breathes into man the breath of life. His own breath brings forth life into what was otherwise an animal, but created differently than all the other animals. They were, not, they were simply created at the word of God, but not by his breath. In a very unique way, the Spirit of God now rested upon this, the capstone of God's creation. The pinnacle of creation was now set. Here was man. And so it was that God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over all that I have created. Let them exercise rule over the creation and let them represent me. I want them, male and female, to bear my image in this physical world that I have created, this order that I have brought forth, they are going to bear my image. And so we see that God created man for the purpose of bearing his glory, for exercising this dominion over the creation. But notice that man is not a man, it is male and female. It is them. They are bearing witness to the creation. They, in them, in that relationship, notice that at the top of creation is a relationship between male and female. They're alike, but not alike. They're the same, but different. In that, we see a hint that God is one, but He's not alone. 
in this relationship of male and female, and the way that Adam and Eve are called to interact, and, and the way that God gives his instructions to Adam, and then Adam is going to talk to Eve, there's something more. There, there's a divine mystery built into the creation. Adam and Eve are bearing God's image, and they don't even know it. What they're doing, they don't even understand what they're doing, and yet they are bearing God's glory in the creation. And God looks at this and says, this is very good. Now let me ask you something. Who are they bearing witness to? Who's there to see it? What, what's, what's seeing this? There's God and there's Adam and Eve. Is Adam bearing witness to Eve? What? Who? What? What is this bearing witness all about? More on that later. I wish we could stop there, because that was very good. God said so. That was what he intended it to be. That was perfect. Not just good. God said good about everything. When he saw the creation of man and woman, he said, very good. You know the story. We're right at the beginning. Adam and Eve are not content with this. They don't think that bearing God's image, carrying out God's order, that's not good enough for them. That does not make them happy. Their hearts are not satisfied. They are not content with bearing God's image the way that God has created them to bear his image. No, what do they want? They want to call the shots. They want... Their words, they want to speak the way it's going to be in their way of thinking. They are not willing to submit to the word of God. They want to define what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, which fruit to eat and which not to eat. No, God's not going to call the shots with them. And so it was that this order that God has created begins to crumble. It breaks up. Struggle ensues. You know, the, the curses come on the on the creation. Now you have weeds. Let me tell you, in Arizona, the weeds are nasty. They have thorns on them. They are vicious. And all of creation now begins to struggle. And what did we say the top of the creation was? It's man and woman. It's a relationship. The, the very glory of God that rested on that relationship at the top of creation now descends into struggle. And we see that in the curses. The woman desires to control and to manipulate the man. The man is going to now rule over the woman. No longer are they going to work together in harmony, but now the struggle is breaking out and fighting and interpersonal warfare begins right at the heart of what it is to be human, to bear God's image. Not only does it go there, it spreads out into the families. It doesn't just stay with the husband and wife. God at the Tower of Babel scatters the nations. He divides them according to the languages. He breaks up the languages of the earth into the 
the, the symbolically there in, in Genesis 10, the 70 nations. And peoples are scattered to the ends of the earth and they are divided from one another because they were in rebellion against God. And now we see that the peoples of the earth begin to struggle against one another and try to master one another. At the Tower of Babel, you have Nimrod, and it says he's a mighty hunter of souls. He was ruling over people and crushing them. Struggle is now at the heart of creation because of what man has done. The glory of God is seemingly crumbling now. That's the fall. But God will not stop there. He's not going to simply let man make a mess and say, fine, and pour out his judgment. No, God continues to work. He continues to send out his word. Who does God send his word to? A pagan wandering around on the edge of the desert named Abram. Abram, get up, leave all this stuff you know, start going to a place that I will tell you. And so it is by the word of God, God comes to this man who is completely lost and says, do what I tell you to do. Follow me. Let me start giving you orders. And Abram obeys and he begins to follow. He listens to the word of God and he, he believes the promises of God. So he picks up and he moves. You know the, the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and God continues, his people continue to wander and they follow him. All they have are God's promises. All they have is God's word. And they just follow it. There's, nothing, there's no other reason but that God said it. And then comes the great act of salvation. When these people that have been following God's word are enslaved in Egypt, God with a mighty hand and with power reaches in lays his hand on Moses and empowers him to strike down Egypt with the plagues. And he draws out his people in the great picture of salvation. And he brings them out to Mount Sinai. And God makes a covenant with these people. He gives them his words. The Jews call it the ten words, the ten commandments. God gives them his word, his order. He, and he says to them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, it's all mine, and if you will listen to my word, I will make you my treasured possessions. I will put my glory on you. You are going to be what the whole earth sees. Will you do it? Well, Israel says, duh, yes, we will do it. That's great. We accept the covenant. And so God gives them his ten words, gives them his commands. This is how you are to live. You know the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This isn't just cussing and swearing. Of course, it refers to not profaning the name of God in that way, but it's much greater than that. It's bearing the image of God now in Israel. They were going to be his image bearers so that the whole earth could see what God's order would look like. 
All the other peoples had their kings and their orders and their ideas about how it should be. They were all going according to their wisdom. Here was going to be a special people, God's people, where his order can be seen, where his word is made manifest. And God says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has called you to be a, tro- a chosen people, a treasured, treasured possession. And he goes on to say, that it's not because you are so special. It's not because you're so great, so many of you. You're actually a bunch of slaves. I'm picking you because when people see you're different, they're going to know it's me. When they see that you act differently than other people, they're going to know it's my wisdom, my order. You can't accomplish things, but if you will obey, I will give you the accomplishments. If you will listen to me, I will bless you. I wish I could stop there and say that they kept their word and they they did it. Of course, you know Israel's history. That's not how it works. Joshua leads them in, they get the promised land, they get these blessings that God promised them, and what do they do? They turn aside and start listening to their neighbors. They listen to the world around them. They listen to the Canaanites. This is how you farm, this is how you worship, this is how you marry, this is how you order your life. So then that's where we have the period of the judges. People fall into sin, God sends someone to to, to deliver them, put them back in teach them his word again, and back and forth, and back and forth for 400 years. And it becomes really obvious that they can't do it. They are unable by their own free will, by their own desires, by their own purpose, they cannot follow God. They got 400 years of evidence, and it's getting worse. If you read through the book of Judges, it gets worse with each Read the end of the book of Judges. It's horrible what Israel has fallen to. So, God gives them a king. He gives them a man to restrain those evil desires. And so he gives them what they wanted. Someone to help put order in the land and keep them on the right track. He gives them that shepherd king. And we see David come and then we see Solomon. And Israel prospers. But how do these shepherds do? Before very long, the shepherds are actually shepherding the people into sin. They begin teaching the people how to rebel against God. They begin teaching. It's by their own word. They begin shepherding the people into more and more evil. God had created this people to be a light to the Gentiles, to display his glory, to put it out there for all to see. And what have they done? Just the opposite. They have completely defamed the name of God. They have brought about disorder. And you see, the nation of Israel dies. The northern tribes are carried away and destroyed. Nothing is left. Then comes the turn of the southern kingdom. God had promised them back at Sinai, if you do not obey the ten words that I have given you, I will scatter you to the ends of the earth. And that's at last what happens. The Babylonians come in, And Judah is carried away into captivity. And they are scattered across the face of the earth. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God comes to them. Ezekiel 36. And he he says to Ezekiel, When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it. 
by their ways and their deeds. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. God gave them justice. He gave them exactly what they deserved. But, but when they came to the nations, wherever I scattered them, they profaned my holy name in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. And I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God brings the punishment that they fully deserved, but then he also says, he will have pity on his name. He will have pity on his reputation. I will not let my glory collapse and be obscured in the chaos and in the disorder which you have brought it. Just like Adam and Eve had failed and brought God's name into disorder and into ill repute, Israel has done the same thing. But God will not quit. God goes back. He gets Israel out of captivity and he brings them back to their land. You know the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and the later the, the prophets Haggai and Ze Zechariah and Malachi coming and preaching and Israel is being reformed and they hear God's word and they say, we're going to keep it and we're going to be really zealous to keep it. And they pursued God's law with everything in them and they enforced it and they became Pharisees bunch of legalists. They were after the word, but that was it. There was no life. Their words and then in the way they went about following God's order killed life. And it was at this point that God sends his son into the world. It's at this point that we see Jesus break in and God starts a new creation. John 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That, that word, that word, word, in Greek, carries the idea of a, a order, a pattern. Okay, here it is. Here's God giving out that pattern. And he's speaking. I mean, he's picking up the very words from Genesis 1, 1, here in John 1, 1. Starting out putting these, making that connection for them. That order that was given at the very beginning, it's now being given again. Now, just as God came down to earth in flesh and he created a man and breathed into him the breath of life, Jesus is coming and doing the same thing. God himself is coming to earth in the person of this man, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is order and here is life coming to the earth. 
It says that he was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. The world wanted its own order. They did not want to recognize the Creator. They turned their backs on Him. He came to those that were His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who would receive Him, to those who believed on His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Remember when Jesus was baptized? What a What did the voice from heaven say? This is my son. What's the next thing? Hear him. Listen to him. This is the word that was sent from heaven. This is the word that brings order, that brings life. This is the one that I have put my glory upon. This is the new creation. This is the one who is going to be that light to the Gentiles and not fail. As we've seen Adam and Eve and Israel and all that came before fail to be a a proper reflection of God's glory. They fail over and over and over, but not this one. This one, Jesus, he's going to bear the glory of God properly. He will be the new Adam. He will be the one that rules over the creation that represents and bears God's glory correctly. That brings back, that that, that helps to pull back the nations. He will be the new Abraham. The one through whom all the blessings will come to all the nations of the earth. He'll be the new Moses. He'll be the one that gives that new law. It's going to be different than than the law of Moses. It's not going to be that, that word that rested so heavily on the people and crushed them, the Ten Commandments. No, this law is going to come with what? Spirit of God. Isn't that the, that's the beautiful thing you see in, in the middle of book, John's book there. He has Christ telling them, I'm sending you the comforter. I'm sending you the spirit. I'm not just giving you a law about how to live. I'm going to give you a spirit that will enable you to live this way. This is the true image of God. Friends, this is the gospel. This is what we're here to celebrate. This is the good news that was brought about by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when the all of creation, when everyone who had ever lived had failed to uphold God's dignity, had failed to uphold the name of God, who had brought it into disrepute and defamed His name, that He sent this one that could do it. The God who is rich in mercy sent His Son into the world to save sinners who will be recreated back into the image. That's what we mean when we say born again. Given new life. Recreated. That's what we talk about being born again or saved or or created you know, in the image of, of Christ. That's what we're talking about. That's what it means. Just the way God created man the first time, now we're talking about a second creation. This is the hope that is changing all creation. Being cre- we are being recreated back into into the image of that invisible God. To be make him visible in the creation. Now that's my introduction. Don't worry. That's half the sermon. Turn over to Ephesians. The text this morning is Ephesians. Here's where it comes to us. Paul is writing with all of this in mind. 
Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's speaking to them. Ephesians chapter 1, he begins talking about God's election, how God has chosen the people in Christ. That from the foundations of the world, it was God's plan. It's not an accident. Paul is telling them, all of these failures and disasters that have happened before, this is not an accident. This is exactly how God planned it. None of this caught him off guard. His plan was for everyone to be able to see the failure and for Christ to come into this situation and fix it. And now he's writing to the Ephesians who believe this. So now what? What is this going to look like? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you can start at verse, um, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of the law, not of what you've done so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by grace that Christ has come in and recreated his people and now the glory of God is resting upon them. You see that? That he wants to show the incomparable riches of his grace. This is what God is doing in his church in Ephesus. This is God's plan. By his grace, he is taking unworthy people and putting them to work for his kingdom. So it is in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start at verse 7. And Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel, this, this, this good news that Paul has been explaining. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of his people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was now that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom, confidence. you see what he's saying? From the ages past, God's plan was that in the church, who was going to see this? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who was seeing what God was creating back in, uh, with Adam and Eve? Who was watching? I don't even know. We call them angels and demons because we don't even really know. Friends, the church, what God has been doing with his people from Adam and Eve all the way through Israel to Christ, to Ephesus, to us sitting here, it's part of the wisdom of God working out 
for people, for creatures that we don't even see, to watch and to see the character of God coming out. People bearing his glory. That was God's plan from the beginning of the world. And when everything was crumbling and falling apart, that's where he went back in and sent Christ to recreate this order and to bring about this order and to send out his life to animate his body. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. Christ is its head. We are the body. The head thinks and it sends out commands. The body moves whichever way the head tells it to go. And so you see the order of God working out through the body of Christ. This is what God had planned from the beginning. And so it is now that the church bears God's glory by being a living, breathing display of God's intent from the foundation of the world. There's one book, old theologian I read, started out this way. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole glory of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. He's saying that, the, and he's taking it from these verses, the idea that the church is that display, that the glory of God comes down, hits the church, and is reflected out for all to see. All peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, and the peoples we don't see. Angels. It says that the angels long to look into the mysteries of God. Redemption. This is what's going on. When no one sees what we're doing, there's still people that see what we're doing. Understand that? We are a walking, talking, living display of what God's doing. So what does this look like practically? Let's go back to where we started in the creation, right? What, what, where did that, where did that, what messed up? Well, if you look at the, the context here in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, the main idea that Paul is driving at here is racial reconciliation. That idea at the Tower of Babel with everyone being scattered and all the nations now struggling for mastery over the other nations and the peoples, Babylon conquering the Jews, carrying them away with many other peoples ruling over them, each man striving like Nimrod as a mighty hunter who's capturing souls. He's undoing all that. Struggle is ending. No longer is there going to be this racial struggle. That's what he's talking about, the middle wall, the, the barrier of, of alienation between Jew and Gentile. It's broken down. That, that, that divide is ended. The, the, the hand that was clenched is now opening up. The will of God is spreading out. Once again, you see life coming back into the creation the way God intended every tribe and tongue and nation to be a part of the display of his glory. It's coming back. That's what's going on here. The, the curse that fell upon them at Babel is being slowly but surely reversed. That's what's starting at Pentecost and is spreading out through the churches. And so, friends, our churches ought to be a display of that. The fact that we can come from different ethnic and racial backgrounds and be one in Christ is a display of God's glory in ways we don't even properly understand. But perhaps more personally, marriage 
Then we see right there at the curse, you have Adam and Eve beginning to struggle against one another. That's where the curse really started, was in marriage. So I think it's no accident. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, he goes into that, and that's where Paul goes, and he says, look, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Marriage is carrying this divine order and mysteries that you didn't even know that you were carrying. It's Christ and his church. There's this, this mystery of marriage. And so it is. When husband and wife are alone, there's no one else to see, they're still carrying on the display of God's glory. You don't know who might be watching. We don't know who sees us. You may be discouraged at times. Come here, you know, this week we have lots of guests. Future, maybe like a bunch of people are gone and there's like six of you sitting around and it's kind of discouraging. You're still bearing God's glory. Still being carried out. It's still, there are people who watch and see how you love and how you interact with one another. This is what the church is to do, is to to bear the divine image, that reconciliation, proper relationships, this love that God has had. I hope you think about this. It seems a bit overwhelming. I hope you kind of feel your spiritual knees buckling a little bit to think, how am I going to do all this? I, I can't do this. We can't do this. We're just a couple of people. How in the world is this going to be carried out? How are we going to do it if all Israel failed? They fell under God's curse. How are we going to do better than they? I think that's exactly what Paul is anticipating. Look at verse 14, because right here is where, after having just said this, that you all are the display of God's glory to people who cannot even be seen, to the nations, to, to everyone. God's glory rests on you. He says, for this reason, because of this... I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying for them that the spirit of God would animate them. What can bear the glory of God but but the spirit of God? You and I can't bear this up. The only thing that can bear up the immeasurable weight of God's glory is the Spirit of God. It's when he supports the Ephesians. That's when they can bear this. And where does this come from? It comes from Christ. He's the head. He's the one that sent this Spirit. He's the one that gave this law and the Spirit to carry it out. He's the one that now his will is going forth unhindered. This is where the unity comes from. Paul continues, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Okay, if you read that carefully, do you notice that Paul just contradicted himself? 
My prayer is for you to know that which surpasses knowledge. I want you and your limited finite brain to understand the mysteries of the universe that cannot be understood by limited finite brains. That's essentially what he is saying. Okay? Paul seems to be contradicting himself here. He's, I want you and your brain to understand the fullness of God's love. Everything that God has been purposing since the beginning of creation, all the love that he had had from the beginning and is intending to put out as a display of his glory, you need to know it. And that's my prayer for you, that you will know what surpasses knowledge. It seems contradictory. This is impossible. But look what he says, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to his power, there is work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To our minds, this is impossible. That's exactly right. This is something that we cannot do. But he's saying that God can do it in you. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or think. This is a knowledge, this is an understanding, this is a grasping that goes beyond what can really be known with the mind. This goes to the Spirit of God that animates, that brings life, that works out these mysteries in ways we cannot even begin to grasp. Because it surpasses knowledge that we bear the image of God in ways we do not know. I am certain that there are mysteries embedded in this church that we cannot see and we will not know until we are dead. And we are able to look back with the eyes of Christ and see that in our love for one another, in the love that you have that binds you together, there are mysteries that God is working out so do not be discouraged. God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Pray for each other this way. See how Paul has prayed for this church? Pray for each other. Pray that, that the members, of, you have church directories, pray for the other members of the church that they would understand, that they would come to know the love of God more fully. Why are we deficient? Because we don't really love the way God has taught us to. Pray that we would really love with the fullness of God's spirit that passes understanding. We would grow in understanding of God's super abounding love and glory. Pray for your elders on this. How much, how much weight do they bear? They're supposed to administer this body doing these things. Pray for them. That they would have the wisdom that goes beyond what, what we can even say. But without the Spirit of God resting on them, that failure is inevitable. Just look at Israel. But with the Spirit of God, we can bear the image of God's glory. Pray for each other this way. Is Grace Fellowship Church a church worth watching? Absolutely. When you think about the church, what do you think of it as, as a place to be? A lot of times people think of the church as a place where you come and you, you learn things. You, you grow in your understanding of God. It's, you study the Bible, which hopefully we do. We mean to do that. Other people go to church to, to, to socialize, to meet people, to, to fellowship, to be encouraged, to serve. 
If you're a little more spiritual, you're thinking, well, it's not about me. It's how I can serve other people. These are all good. This is really limited. This isn't really what God created the church for. Those are all aspects of it. God created the church as a trophy cabinet. You're his trophies. It's the trophies of his grace and mercy going out into the, the fallen world, just like he went to Abraham and brought his word to him and took him and set him up as a display. It's the place where God puts his trophies together and says, see, this is what I am doing. This is my wisdom for all to see. Friends, you are God's trophies. God told Israel, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. And Peter says the same thing to the church. You are God's treasured possession. You're his trophy. You're the good china. Okay, there's the dog bowl over there. Not you. You're the one that goes in the special cabinet and goes out for the good guests. You're the treasured possessions. You're where God puts his wisdom on display, his, his artistic ability, everything that's good in God, he puts it in you. You are his treasured possession. Not because you or I are so special. You shouldn't go out feeling much better about yourself today because you're so good. No, it's because God is doing this in you. And he will not fail. It's not going to fail. It's, he never gives up. Whenever we fail, God keeps going and he keeps at work. So do not be discouraged. This is the new creation. This is the beginnings of heaven right here. This is, this is the age to come, cracking into this age. This is where we begin to see the glory of God displayed. I'll bet when you came to church this morning, you weren't thinking that. I hope next week when you come to church, you look around and say, here is the beginnings of heaven. Here is the foretaste of God's wisdom and glory. This is what for all ages to come, isn't that what Paul said here? For all ages to come that we're going to be the display of God's glory. Praise God. So be it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would strengthen us. That specifically Grace Fellowship Church would be strengthened by your spirit, that their minds would be expanded to know the unknowable love of God. She would be strengthened to carry out the tasks that you have given her. Pray that Christ would be supreme in the affections and in the teaching and in the love that is seen in this place that your glory would be made known here. We pray that each and every one would grow in their love for Christ and that it would overflow and abound to those around us. Pray that you would do this out of your profound wisdom and your infinite strength so that the glories of your recreation, your renewed kingdom, may be made known people we do not even see and know will hear and know of your glory because of what you are doing here. And we all ask all of this to the praise of Jesus Christ 
that his work on the earth would be glorified, that his sacrifice would be honored and magnified. So it's in his name that we pray all of this. Amen.